Psalm 119.62 says, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great treasure. Think for a second if you were to win that $750 million, three quarters of a billion dollar lottery. And yet we rejoice in his word, not because we find it, not because we discover it, because it is revealed to us. But the feeling, the rejoicing would be at least that much and so much more. What causes your heart to burn? You know, Pastor saw the title of my sermon and he, he suggested, he said, what, could you change it? It says, does, your, does the word of God burn within or is it just your heart burning? Well, what causes your heart to burn? Is it two feet of snow? <laughs> Pepperoni pizza? Politics? Tom Brady in the Super Bowl again? <laughs> I know that's bugging some people. I know what has caused my heart to burn. About uh, 30, it was 31 years ago, this time of year, God put it in my heart to start reading his word. Not because I thought it was something I wanted to do. It's not something I would come up on my own because it's not the kind of thing I did. And I started reading his word daily, well, five days a week. I didn't do it on Saturdays and Sundays. That was my day off. The, uh, and I would bring it to work, and I would read it every day at work before anyone showed up, and I'd hide it in my desk before they came in. And over a period of 10 months of doing that, it seemed like every day I was starting to look and hear things and see things that never would have occurred to me before. And at the end of about 10 or 11 months, I understood. I came to salvation. And the word of the Lord just started burning. It seemed like after that, for a period of time, everything I could find, I would read. If it said Jesus on it, I read it, and I read some bad stuff. You know, read some good stuff, read some bad theology, read some good theology. And I just kept on, like, and it was like this for a while. In fact, the song we read, we, uh, we did beginning, uh, the doxology, uh, I found myself, everywhere as I went, quietly singing to myself, the do- I didn't even know I knew it, the doxology, the first verse. I said, where did that come from? I didn't even know it. I'd be singing it in my truck on the way to work, loudly, Badly, <laughs> sang it in every key you can think of, mostly off-key, but it didn't matter. It was in my heart, and it was burning. Now, to my great shame, over periods of time, that burning has pretty much come down to sometimes just a simmer, you know, just, just barely on. And it, even more so, the more I got into the Word, sometimes it would be that way. Nineteen years of teaching the Bible at New Covenant, there were times where I'd pick up the Word, and it was just another textbook. And it became so routine that you'd want to hurry up and get through it, which is why I hate Bible plans. You know, well, I have to read these four chapters today. Well, if I miss a day, I've got to read eight today. Oh, my goodness, I missed three days in a row. I've got to read like 16 verses or chapters today. And then it goes away. I can't do Bible plans that way because then I just kind of like hurry up and read the stuff and I forget the stuff. I don't learn the stuff. It doesn't come in. It doesn't enter. What causes your heart to burn? This is a story, three stories actually I'm going to tell. The story of Revelation, which we see in the story from Emmaus. I'm not going to read it again. It is long. And I probably going to talk long, so I'm going to try not to. Uh, it's also more than that, though. From that revelation, there's always going to be a response from this revelation from God. And it's going to be rebirth, as it was in my case. But it's also, for us that are saved, there should always be 
from that revelation, a sense of repentance and a sense of revival from that. And it, to me, you can't do one without the other, and it all starts with the word of the Lord burning in us. It's a story of revelation, leads to a response of repentance, revival, or rebirth. And this revelation is not something we can come into on our own. We cannot discover spiritual truth by the power of our intellect. None of us are smart enough for this. None of us are good enough for this. It is the grace of God that does it. The Bible tells us the unsaved person cannot understand the Bible, cannot discern what it means. That's what makes us different. The grace of God, the Holy Spirit within us, revealing his word to us. That is a gift from God. In fact, I, was, I, looked, I was talking about Revelation, so I thought I'd look it up, see what dictionary says, because dictionaries nowadays say some pretty strange things. Merriam-Webster, uh, the first two definitions, and I was really excited. It said, an act of revealing or communicating divine truth. I went, yeah, that's good. And then the next one says, something that is revealed by God to humans. Again, something I want to emphasize is that reading for the sake of reading is not understanding. It is something that is revealed by God to us. We must be open to what Lord is doing. So let's go right off to a story. I have to turn this thing on. A story of revelation. And that is... Luke 24, 13 to 33. Nate read it a few minutes ago. And uh, I will go through it briefly, and I won't read it again, because it is fairly long, and besides that, he did a good job reading it. So, but the first day, we see the, the two, this, these two people. These were disciples. You know, Jesus had many disciples following him, not just, the two, not just the 12 apostles. And these two were going to Emmaus, about seven miles away. And what day was it? Well, it was Resurrection Day. It was Easter Sunday. It was the day that they found the empty tomb. It was the day that the angels had spoken to the girls, the ladies that were there. And they had heard all these things, and they knew these things, and they were walking back to, to Emmaus, and they were talking to each other about the things that had occurred over that, not just that weekend, though, but they were probably there for the previous week, what we call Palm Sunday. I mean, what have they seen? You know, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and the crowds just crying out, Hosanna. Then they, the arrest and the trials and the crowds, probably the same crowd, crying, crucify him. The crucifixion, the burial, the empty tomb. They were discouraged. They were sad, the verse says a little bit further on. They were confused, but they had no reason to be discouraged, but they just didn't understand they had heard the reports that the woman had told them. They'd heard about the angels. They'd heard that Jesus was alive, but they didn't know what to believe. So while they're talking and discussing, Jesus draws near to them. I always kind of picture this as Jesus kind of like, he draws near to them. It seems so formal. I think he just kind of like trots up to them from behind and said, hey guys, wait a second. Can I, can I walk along with you? And they went, yeah, sure. And while they're talking, though, he draws near, and they, the key part is they did not recognize him. And Nate said this in his prayer. Uh, you know, his prayer just kind of like, I was going, keep praying, Nate, I won't have to get up. You know, he's doing good. <laughs> but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Why? They were his disciples. They'd been following him around. They'd seen him a bunch of times. Well, certainly God had prevented them from seeing him, but why would he do that? You know, certainly we know that they did, had an incomplete understanding of scriptures. They're going to demonstrate that in a second. 
Perhaps their lack of faith that what transpired with what was prophesied and what Jesus had actually said was going to happen. They must have heard that. Maybe they just couldn't believe what they saw, so they didn't. That happens. Perhaps they were kept from seeing for this teaching opportunity. He's going to have a chance to impart something that they couldn't possibly know. And as I'm thinking that, and as I'm writing that down, I was thinking, boy, what keeps us from seeing Jesus today in our journey? You know, what, what has you, have you seen Jesus today? And I, I don't mean figuratively, but I don't mean literally, because if you've seen him literally, well, good for you. <laughs> but I'm really speaking literally, uh, figuratively, you know. Have you seen Jesus today? What keeps us from seeing him? And he said to them, what are you talking about? I know, it's more formal in the word. But he said, what are you talking about as you walk? And they said, and they stopped. What are you talking about? And they just stopped and looked at him and go, really? Seriously? Are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know what was going on these past few days? That's what they said. That's not what they said. That's my paraphrase. But they're sad and discouraged. Was, you know, was Jesus not who they expected? Well, they tell him a little bit further on, they, they had hoped he would come to redeem Israel, but their hopes had been shattered. You know, perhaps they were just discouraged because God didn't do what they, wanted, what they wanted him to do. They saw the glory of the kingdom, but they didn't see the cross. You know, they, they failed to understand the suffering servant. They saw the king. No doubt they were going through Old Testament prophecies that Jesus had taught that they knew. And all these things they're going through their head, and they're trying to remember but in the end, is he a failure or is he a, a success? These people were sad. They had pinned their hopes for themselves and their nations upon Jesus, and they couldn't understand what had happened. They couldn't put it together and come up with an explanation that made sense. And this is at that point where they go, seriously, are you the only person who doesn't know? And Jesus, I mean, when you really think about it, this is a little bit humorous, this is a little irony. He goes, what? What happened? Like, he didn't know. Why would he do that? He could have just, at that point, done what? Told them. But he wanted them to go through those next passages. And they said to him, concerning this Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And that's where they stopped the description. This is where they came short. A man, mighty indeed. They hadn't gone beyond the man part. They, hadn't heard, they had not heard and understood from prophecy and what they had seen, that he was the Messiah. That's where they needed to go. I think he wanted them to recite all this and tell them so then they could come to an understanding of how little they understood. That's a good place to be, unless you spend too much time there like me. In a way, though, the longer that Cleopas talked, and he's the one that speaks up, the more he kind of indicts himself and his friend for their unbelief and actually just kind of lays his unbelief out there because of how, incomplete, how complete, incomplete it is. What more evidence could they want? They had the prior teachings, they had the prophecies. Again, they had the witness testimonies from uh, the ladies that went to the tomb and the story of the angels. They had all the evidence was there. So what more did they need? In a way, it kind of reminds me later on uh, in the book of John when uh, Jesus had appeared to the apostles and Thomas wasn't there. And the next time, uh, Tom, and Thomas said, Shh, I ain't going to believe you unless I see it. And then the next time we hear Jesus say to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And for some reason that reminded me of that. 
And then Jesus begins his teaching. And he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So immediately he's talking about their faith, their belief. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So what was their basic problem? Quite simply, they just did not believe all that the prophets had written about the Messiah. And that was the problem of most of the Jews back then. That's why they were all waiting for this conquering redeemer, because they didn't see the suffering serpent. They read the Old Testament, they saw again the glory, but not the cross. The crown, but not the cross. They were blind to the complete teaching of Scripture. So where did Jesus take him? Well, he obviously took him to the beginning, right? He said, and he teaches about everything about himself in the scriptures. Uh, he might have started as early as Genesis 3.15, where we had that first promise of a redeemer. You know, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. Then he might have stopped at Genesis 22. And we have Abraham offering up his only beloved son. Surely he touched on the Passover. I mean, it's pretty fresh in their minds. The Levitical studies, the tabernacle ceremonies, the Day of Atonement, the serpent in the wilderness must be lifted up. The suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and the prophetic messages of Psalm 22 and 69. He taught all the things concerning himself, is what it says at the end. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Paul tells us that in Romans. And I think that explains why Jesus went through this and opened the word and first made them understand where they were at and then continued from there and brought them to where they needed to be. He opened to them as they walked. The real problem was not in their heads. Not in their heads. They knew the scriptures or they knew what the scriptures said. But in their hearts, they did not know the scriptures. There's a big difference between knowing what they say and knowing them. Isn't there? If you really think about it. Can you know of God? Well, yeah, the heavens declare the glory of God. General Revelation tells us all about him. Or tells us that he is. And yet, so much more is needed. And this is where they were at. So, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. They could have discussed the subject forever and never arrived again at an answer. So as they drew near to the village where they're going, he, he made it like he was going to go further, but they wanted him to stay. And so he stayed with him, and he's at the table, they're having a meal, and he breaks the bread, he's acting as host. And he gave it to them, and at this point their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Their eyes were opened, their spiritual eyes were opened. And now they recognize Jesus the man, but they also recognize Jesus the Messiah, the one that was foretold. Their faith was awakened and they recognized him. What they needed was, the whole time, an understanding of the word of God. And Jesus gave that to them. He opened their eyes, he awakened their faith, and they realized that he was right there, alive and with them. This is like us, this is like me. You know, just often need a fresh understanding of the word of God. The, uh, it's, there's nothing new. It hasn't changed. It's not going to change. The word of the Lord will stand forever, according to Isaiah. But we need a refreshing and I'm talking about those of us that are saved. If you're not, 
You need the Lord to open up your heart to receive the word so he can reveal it to you. And he will. And that's what he does. He revealed himself during, to himself during a common meal, again, during the daily moments of life, to me driving down the road between the Maine-New Hampshire border. I was one person in New Hampshire, and I crossed over, and I was somebody entirely different in Maine. Daily, common things, he reveals himself. That's when I went, oh, I got it. That was, I didn't say this long, long prayer, by the way. I was just going, oh, I got it. And I knew I had it. It was different. God revealed himself. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? Their hearts burned while he, the living word, opened the written word, the scriptures to them. Understanding and faith were awakened in them. I, to me, this is the point of salvation for these guys. Before then they were followers. Now they are followers. Disciples of Christ. They went from concerning this man Jesus to learning and understanding all the things concerning him that we see at the end of that passage. Imagine Jesus standing right here. I'd have to hide. But imagine Jesus standing here opening the scriptures to us. I'd have to jump into Mary mode and sit right here. And I'm, that's not me. I'm, I'm a Martha kind of person, which is bad. But I'd fall into Mary mode. Just sit at his feet and listen. It'd be fantastic. He does, he's not here. Doesn't have to be here. We have the living word living within us who indwells us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He will teach us those very same things that we wish that Jesus could do it right here. He will teach us those very same things concerning ourselves. And our understanding and our faith will be awakened, it will be enlarged. The more we receive the word of God, the more we want a fellowship with the God of the word. Receiving Bible truth and walking with the Savior will lead to a burning heart. So what is this burning? Well, I have three things. Uh, for those of you that want to write them down, I'll talk for a second so you give it a chance. If you don't, that's okay. Uh, because I'm going to just go right past and talk about them all at once. You know, what is this burning we're going to be looking at? Kind of, how's it, how's it manifest itself, I guess would be one way to put it. You know, what is the purpose of Revelation? Again, we'll see that part of that is a manifestation through that burning. And what does it accomplish? And those are the three things I really want to look at. I'm going to, have, I'm going to show us there's six things that I believe, well, I shouldn't say this, there's six things. There's a multitude of things that the, the Lord reveals to us through his word. I picked out these six, and I'm going to go through them briefly because there's six. First off, he reveals himself to us. Again, I, we know God exists. We know he is. Even if you're unsaved, you know there is a God because of general revelation. Heavens are clearing your glory. You know, but to us, he reveals his plan of redemption, his grace, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness, his holiness, his love, and on and on, his nature, you know, to know God. He reveals to us how to know him rather than just to know of him. And we need to go there. Reveals Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah is revealed. And we see that, how he did that with the, uh, with the two going to, to Emmaus. You know, through prophecy and scripture and one by one, each point, 
on how he is the Messiah. Reveals the Father through Jesus Christ. Well, didn't I just say that in the first one? Well, no, he reveals his nature, but God is spirit. You still can't really... It's hard to identify with spirit. I don't know about you, but it's hard to identify with something you can't see or even imagine in, in most ways. Philip had the same problem. He said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And in answer to this question, Jesus declared, Have I been with you so long and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know God? Pick up the word, read the Gospels, through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, through the life of Jesus Christ, you have seen God. Everything else you don't need to see, otherwise he'd show it to us. Everything else we don't need. It's a wondrous mystery. I used, to, I used to be Catholic, and I had a nun. Kathy just did that. I used to have a nun. And whenever she got to a thing in, in, uh, in catechism class, she didn't want to explain. It's a mystery of the faith. Her hands would go, it's a mystery of the faith. Okay. I used to do that in history class. It's a mystery. Okay. I'm sorry. We are revealed to ourselves, and this is the most humbling one, I hope. We are revealed to ourselves. The ancient Greeks... Uh, in, in Delphi, there's a, a, a temple to Apollo, and there's an inscription on it that says, Know thyself. I mean, this is some quest, the some quest of the ancient, of ancient Greeks is to know yourself, the study of man. Protagoras, later on, another Greek, ancient Greek, he's credited with saying, Man is the measure of all things. Well, that's humanism. And, Postmodernism today, if you want. Uh, but that's humanism. It's been around for as long as there's been human. It hasn't changed. And sometimes we have to be careful we, we don't get into that. We need to understand that as Christians, that the knowledge of ourselves is not going sitting on a mountain or, or sitting out looking over the canyon and watching the eagles fly, and I'm going to find myself. That's not it. We have to remember that the knowledge of oneself involves a corresponding and personal knowledge of the God who made us. We need to understand why we were made, how we were made, who made us, for what purpose. And in part of that, it involves a, a need, or a, it involves a, a, a knowledge of the, our personal need for salvation, and that he alone can do it. That's knowledge of ourselves. We need to know who we are. We can know a lot, a lot, but, you know, biology and all those. We know a lot about humans. We can know a lot about ourselves, but do we really know ourselves? We can't determine what we're meant to be or why we repeatedly fail to achieve that goal apart from revelation from God. We need to see ourselves not as we think we are or hope to be. I think we spend too much time as hope to be. Nor as we wish to be. Not as others, others see us but as God sees us through Jesus Christ. That's how we need to see ourselves. Okay, moving on. Another one, sin is revealed. Well, Paul tells us the purpose of the law is to reveal sin. We wouldn't know what sin was if it wasn't for, uh, for the law. And go, why do we need to know this? Well, isn't it nice to know when you're breaking the law? You need to know it. Because the Bible also tells us that all people have sinned and need saving. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in the book of Romans. So how about us? 
Excuse me, this is, this is hard work. It really is. Grab your Bible. I, not necessarily, really. Okay, it's kind of like a rhetorical, grab your Bible. Um, hold it up, this is a mirror. Okay, don't look at your face, okay? You guys are all pretty and ladies are all handsome. Okay, look at the mirror. <laughs> it will reflect the condition of your heart as you use it as the measuring rod of God's word. This will reflect the condition of your heart. You know, doing this, we will learn who God is. We will learn who he says we are. We will begin to understand his mercy and his grace, his justice. And from that, we have to understand his justice also. But his mercy, as the word reveals our sin to us and our total inability to justify ourselves, and hence the need for a Savior or Messiah. Paul in Galatians says, the mirror functions as a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. We need this to be driven to Christ daily, at least. So from Revelation, from a burning heart, there's going to be some kind of response. You know that Hebrews 4.12 tells us, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If I had read that the first time, first, before I read anything else in the Bible, I wouldn't have read the Bible. Because there's a lot of things there I don't want to know. Certainly the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And yet that's what the word of God does, because it's what we need to know. And this will lead us to my next story, and it will be a shorter one. It's a story of repentance from 2 Chronicles 34, 14 to 33. I would, I would tell you what pages they're on in your Bibles, but I forgot all about checking what those were. But you can find it. You don't have to follow along if you, want any, if you don't want to anyway, because I'm not going to go through it verse by verse. I'm just going to step through it a little bit. But read it later. That's good as we see a revelation of the word leading to repentance. This is the time of Josiah, one of the good kings of Judah. They, they had a few. Israel, on the other hand, didn't have any good kings, and they're already gone at this point. They've been taken off to Assyria. Josiah being a good king, they're rebuilding the temple and reestablishing many of the things that the Israelites should be doing. And in verse 14, it starts off, the book of the law was found. Well, the book of the law being found, and you're going, well, how did they lose the book of the law? They had neglected it and set it aside until, by the way, the Bible that I started reading 31 years ago was, uh, it was called the Living Bible. It was a translation, you know, that green faux leather. Anybody, anybody old enough to remember that? Oh, you're not old enough to remember that, but thank you. They... Uh, shouldn't have phrased it that way. The, uh, my mother had given it to me in 1975 for Christmas. And it had been sitting there and collecting dust for over 15 years. And that's where I went. Someone had planted a seed in my house. I wonder who that was. The, uh, and I said, that's the one I started reading. The book of the law was found. They blew the dust off it and said, hey, let's read this. The law was brought to, to Josiah and was read to him. 
And as they're reading, he tears his robes in sorrow and agony and repentance. Because he realizes, he realizes his sin, but not just his, the sin of his nation. And he consults a prophetess. He sends a couple of the priests over. He says, go inquire of Huldah. You know, inquire the Lord for, those, for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Well, so the priests go and they talk to Huldah and she gets a word from the Lord. I know that because it says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is how she tells them. He has bad news and good news, though. The bad news is that God is going to bring disaster on Judah for the many years of spiritual adultery. However, the good news is, is it's not going to happen during the time of the reign of Josiah. And it's a fairly lengthy reign. Why? The word tells us it was because Josiah's heart was responsive and tender. He humbled himself before God. He had torn his robes and wept before God in repentance. From there, called all the people together, and they read the law, the covenant to them, and they made another covenant to follow the Lord and keep his commandments and statutes, and he did that with all his soul and with all his heart. And we see concluding in this section And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. This is repentance. They turned away from that stuff and they turned to God and did not stop from following him. At least while while Josiah is alive. How about us? True revelation from the word has not taken place unless there is a measure of repentance or refreshing and revival. And I'm not saying you didn't read it. I'm saying there's not been a true revelation from it unless there's a measure of repentance or revival or rebirth that has taken place. And the evidence of repentance, revival, rebirth is obedience. Earlier in Luke, uh, this lady had, had said, blessed is the womb who bore this man. As in, in back in my Catholic days, it said, blessed is the womb of, oh, I even forgot how to say Holy Mary Meyer. Good. <laughs> hey, there's some good foundational stuff back then. But Jesus responds to her, And it says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. James, we have all heard this, don't be merely hearers of the word, but doers. The response to this revelation and this revival and this repentance is obedience. And this, this thing here tickled me, so if it doesn't for you, bear with me. But as I was reading, and I was back in that Luke one where Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word and keep it. I'm going to play Greek words. I don't do this. The only thing I understand with Greek is they make a, a gyro, which is a good sandwich. Okay? <laughs> I don't want to pretend to be anything I'm not. I, I just don't do Greek. But this, I read it. I'll blame the Lord. He caused me to stumble on this. And the, word for, the Greek word for hear 
is akuo. I think acoustic probably comes from that, I think. But the word to obey, the word that was translated keep it, excuse me, <clears throat> is hypakuo. So hearing is akuo, obeying is hypakuo, or we could say hyperhearing. Well, how many of us wish our kids knew how to hyperhear? <laughs> you know, there was years I was going, oh, this kid doesn't hear. It goes in one ear and out the other. Difference between hearing and hyperhearing is it doesn't go in and out. It stays and becomes part of the person. You know, the surface level white noise, you know, that is just plain hearing. And in time, that goes away also. I listen to a solo piano radio. I love just playing quiet uh, piano music while I'm studying and when I'm working and doing any of that. And so I listen to that. But then I realize, after an hour or so of working, I haven't heard a thing. And yet I heard it. But I didn't hear a thing. This is what we do sometimes. This is what I do if I have to rush through 16 chapters of the Bible today to keep track of my, my Bible plan. You know? I might have heard something, but I didn't hear anything. And we do that. Hearing, hyperhearing, is beyond surface level. It's hearing the imperative of the word. It's not just hearing the word. It's hearing the imperative of the word and doing. It results in doing as it commands. And it brings blessing. As Jesus says, even a greater... How much of a blessing do you think it was for Jesus, for Mary to bear Jesus? And he says, hearing the word and keeping it is even greater than that blessing. I think that's significant. In fact, if I wasn't reading the word right now, I'd probably go out and read it, if I heard that. Repentance. And their hearts burned within. And true repentance, true repentance, leads to revival. It's a story of revival and rebirth. And I'm, going to, I'm certainly not going to read Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10 and dabble into 11. Okay? But this comes from Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. This is following uh, after Judah has been judged and taken away, and now they've been allowed to come back, so it's post-exile. And sometime after that, they're building or rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. You guys know the story. 52 days, right? Standing there with a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. You heard all that in the flannel boards? Okay? That was Baptist, Okay. In this passage, we begin to see again a reading of the word. And I think, Pastor, you're going to like some of this. The law was read from daybreak to noon. How's that for an idea? Sorry. Starts off, Ezra opened the book. See, they've gathered, they've completed the wall, they've gathered as a people, and he opens the book, and the people stood when he opened it. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And the people lifted their hands, lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Because they knew where he was headed. They knew what he was talking about. They knew that God was great. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped God with their face to the ground. Meanwhile, while Ezra is reading, the Levites are going through the congregation and ensuring people are understanding. They're giving the meaning. They're making sure that people understand the word that's being revealed to them. And revelation is taking place. And how do I know that? Because they wept as they heard the word in sorrow 
and this revelation and repentance and they're weeping as they hear the word because they know all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ezra says, enough. That's not the time now for this. This is a celebration. Go home, enjoy, celebrate. Celebrate because you have understood the word. And so they do. They take off. And this was the first day of the seventh month. The second day, there's further study by the leaders and more revelation to them. Then they gather again on the eighth day. And they celebrate the festival of the booths. The festival of the booth is a Jewish holiday. And what they're doing is commemorating all those years, 40, that God provided for them while they're in the wilderness, while they're living in booths or tents. And this is what they're celebrating, God's provision for them. It is a day of feasting. It is a day of gift-giving. It is a day of great gladness. And they join in a sacred assembly. This is what revival looks like. But it all comes pat, one piece after the other. They assembled with... But then, on the 24th day, we still see this continuing revival. And does that mean that we got a holy party going on for all this time? No. Because I think the closer we grow to God and the closer we get, the more we begin to see the difference between us and God. It's easy to believe you're God when you don't have any idea of what he's like. The closer you get to God, you begin to realize the difference. And I think this is what's happening here. 24 days of after hearing the word and rejoicing, they assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place, you're going to like this one too, Pastor, and read from the book of the law of the, of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and then for another quarter of it, they made confession and worship the Lord their God. This is revival. This is what it looks like. Not what we sometimes see you know, on TV or whatever. This is what revival is. Corporate prayer after this part. And they go through their entire history of Israel and, and rededication to the Mosaic Law, rededication to God. And I really like it. If you go a little bit further in chapter 11, you begin to realize, and I hope you see it, I hope you see it the way I did, if I saw it right. Uh, Jerusalem, the holy city of God, is going to be reoccupied by the leadership, reoccupied by a percentage of the people that are selected by lot, or I'm going to say elected by God. And they have, in fact, reoccupied the city of God. And their hearts burned within them. What about us? Where are we at? Well, who wants, don't put up your hand. Okay. Who wants or needs revival? Well, I'll say I need revival. I always need revival. Every day I need revival. But who, who wants revival in the classic sense? But be careful. Be careful what you ask for. Because there's a tearing down of things that needs to happen. And that's part of the repentance part. Tearing down of idols. Tearing down of those things that are t- taking you away from God. Then there will be a rebuilding. There's individual corporate repentance. That always precedes revival. You want personal revival? Get on your knees and start repenting first. Don't expect God to just, hey, here you go. He can, you know, but that's not what we should expect. We need to understand our need, and part of that is repentance. We want to get refreshed in the Word. We need to 
repent. And then, remember those guys that occupied the city of Jerusalem? Well, we become the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. That's what we become. The, uh, the best evidence that we have understood the Bible <clears throat> and met the living Christ is that we have something exciting to share with others. The absolute best evidence is that, what did the two guys from Emmaus do when they, all of a sudden they realized and they went, wow, when you open the word, the hearts burned within us. What do they do next? They trudge that seven miles back to Jerusalem. This is evening by now. Seven miles isn't like hopping in a car and going to Mansfield. If they walked at Kathy's pace and my pace when we go walking, it took them a couple hours at least. If they just casually walked back, three hours, three and a half hours at night to go back. Why? We've got to tell somebody. We've got to go tell the disciples. We need to tell the apostles. And that's what they did. But when they arrived, what do they find? They find the apostles and everyone there telling them that Jesus is alive. And what had happened to Peter? They told him all those things, that he had appeared to Peter. Ever imagine... And actually, I did this in a group. After the, year I was, the first year I was saved, boy, there were days I would just like to go back there. And I realized I was living, the burning inside was a lot of emotional burning. The burning I get from the word now is, I want more burning. It's, it's an entirely different kind of thing. Sometimes I like to go back there. But we used to meet with a group. Uh, guy's name was I don't know, Ralph Brundage. Uh, none of you know him. I don't know why I bother to tell you that. The... Uh, but he rem- I remember him, and I remember his godliness, and I remember the conversations that I used to have with him. And I used to run, uh, I ran six miles a day, and he- we would run together sometimes. And when we had, I was in the military, when we had group runs, he'd be running, and I have to, I'll have to confess that I'd step back a little bit because he embarrassed me a little bit. He'd be running like this, praising God, the whole squadron around us. And I was going, holy cow, he's cuckoo. Okay? <laughs> he's a man of God. In fact, he, he, I could never understand him. There were times, he, got, he never, was never to church on time. Never. We're, first song is, we're halfway through the first song. And all of a sudden, he'd come rushing down. Get down to the front, throw his stuff down, go, boom. How do you do that? And he goes, what do you mean? I said, how do you just go from there to worship? He said, just always stay in worship. He says, even when I'm hurrying, I'm worshiping. Just because I'm late doesn't mean I'm not worshiping. He says, God is God. I'm not there because it makes me feel like I'm not doing it, because God is great. Just as the Israelites did. He has something to tell. Ralph would bring us to his house. It happened periodically. And what he would say, it was not a, he invited me. I said, what are we going to do? We're going to talk. Group of people. I guess we call it small groups now or something. Uh, We just talk. We talk about, we just talk about what God is doing in our lives. That's it? Yeah. Everyone just talks about what God is doing in our lives? Yeah. Isn't he doing something in your life? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> they sat down and purposely began to look through the vision of the Holy Spirit on what is God doing in my life? It wasn't the casual conversations like, how, how's it at work? How's it at school? You know, yeah, how about so and so? None of that. It was, 
What's God doing in your life? What would you like God to do in your life? When was the last time you sat around with a group of people and had that conversation? What is God doing in your life? What would you like God to do? Centered everything. Half time today. Center around. Okay, probably not a good choice. Okay. That's the spontaneous part of me. I shouldn't do that. Get in, the, get in the habit of recognizing God, what he's doing each and every day. And when you realize that, you'll understand that you have something to share. You don't need a huge, grand testimony. What's God doing today? It's a wonderful thing. Jeremiah, in the, he, he was always, that's why he, he, he's so sad. Uh, and he writes lamentations, and he always seems like he's lamenting. He was persecuting while he was a prophecy. He went through, really, a hard time while being a prophet for the Lord. And at one point, he almost said, you know what, I don't care, y'all die. You know, it doesn't matter to me. He was at that point when he was ready to just quit and stop telling them the word of the Lord. And his response to himself says, but if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. Boy, that's where I want to be. Can't hold it in. Can't endure it. I'm not there. You know, I, I wish I was. I'm weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it. I can endure holding it in. But there's something wrong with me. He's got the right idea. This is the essence of revival right here. Not a holy party for churchgoers, but a widespread spread proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't turn me off. Then us, did you? Could you advance to the next slide, please? That would be slide 4.4. If I shake it, well, maybe not. I'll just give it to you this way. There is absolutely no substitute for a spirit-led infusion of the Word of God to fuel and fan the flames of revelation, revival, repentance, and rebirth. And may our hearts be so kindled. May my heart be so kindled.